This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The year I turned 16, my buddy Donnie got his driver's license. And we spent that summer doing what a lot of teenagers do with time and a driver's license. We drove around town, fairly aimless. Now, this place where Donnie and I grew up, Qatar, a little peninsula sticking out of Saudi Arabia, there was really nothing to do back there in the mid-90s. Sometimes we went to the 24-hour Dairy Queen. Sometimes Donnie and I just went to the one mall in town. My dad essentially just, you know, helped build the first mall, which was poorly named the mall. You know, with any foresight, you would understand in the future there would be other malls and, uh, and then it would be very confusing. I should pause here for a second and explain something. What follows is one of our more amorphous episodes. I'm going to start with a bit of a personal story and tie it into some theory, all in an attempt to wrap my head around what a world without a home might look like. This podcast is usually about stuff we're running out of sand, helium, glaciers. But this episode's a little different because the thing we're talking about here isn't a commodity or a natural resource. It's an idea. And the idea is home. In the age of climate change, how do we think about home when entire regions are sinking underwater or burning up in forest fires? How does the idea of home change when home itself is no longer a solid concept? That's what this episode is about. Okay, here it goes. Donnie's mom is Italian and his dad is American. And like most people who end up in a place like Qatar, they came here because this country has a ton of oil and gas money and is in desperate need of workers. Meaning that whatever you did for a living back home, chances are you'd get paid a lot more to do it here. Let me explain how Donnie's family came to run this The Mall. Naming Gaff aside, it was sort of the result of the physical and cultural circumstances of Qatar. So why not build a mall here? And that naming choice? I think he was hoping that it would be in the positive. Which mall? Let's go to the mall. And they would be like, ah, we will take them to this one. And all of the people would go to the... That's just not how it worked out. It's very weird to find the place you grew up in, a place hardly anyone could point out on a map, suddenly become the temporary center of the world. The winner to organize the 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. Of course, let's be clear. The reason Qatar won the rights to the World Cup, the reason pretty much anything happens to or in Qatar, is money. This is, pound for pound, one of the richest places on Earth. And sure, the reason anything happens anywhere is usually money, But for the purposes of what we're talking about here, which I promise we'll get to in a second, it's important to know that Qatar, by virtue of its incredible wealth, is changing in ways that most other places simply can't. There it's like urban planning by fiat. Most urban development is kind of this slow, gradual, you know, pressures of population. And there they're just like, this is what will happen. We're going to build this road to this building. There are neither people who want to go to this building nor need to go on this road, but we're going to do it. And through the you know, sheer power of will and, and of course, oodles and oodles of, of money, uh, we're going to make this a reality. Qatar is also a place that by the end of the century probably will be unfit for human habitation. 
I mean, even just getting off the airplane, there's no feeling like it, like coming in from this perfectly air-conditioned, managed, everything in the airplane is kind of carefully, you know, your oxygen level. And then as soon as you walk out, you're drinking this hot, soupy air and your lungs are having, to, it's like that scene in the abyss where they, there was this like liquid oxygen that they had to drink to survive. The reason for that is directly tied to the exact same phenomenon that caused Qatar to grow so quickly and so wealthy in the first place. The same fossil fuels that paid for all of this growth are also causing the planet to heat up so much that Qatar and places like it might no longer be viable for people to live in. Anyway, you breathe liquid so you can't get compressed. The pressure doesn't get you. You mean you got liquid in your lungs? Oxygenated fluorocarbon emulsion. Bullshit. I've never had a particularly good answer to the question, where are you from? I was born in Egypt, but I left with my family when I was five. I lived in Qatar for the next 11 years, but it's virtually impossible for most people who, like me, aren't born into Qatari families to become citizens of that country. I'm now a dual citizen of the US and Canada, but those places don't really start for me until I move to this part of the world at age 16. It's a messy relationship with home, and for that reason, so much of what I think of when I think of home is memory. Those aimless nights we spent hanging out at the Dairy Queen, or the time Donnie's dad hired us to dress up in bunny and lion costumes for a promotion of some kind at the mall, which is still among my all-time most regrettable employment decisions. Memories of the stuff that happened, rather than the places where it happened. But for the past few years, I've been wrestling with the idea that the place where this stuff happened is nonetheless not going to be around for much longer. And this disappearance of place isn't about a single storm or wildfire, it's something more all-encompassing, a permanent obliteration. And it's happening all over the globe. I'm Omar Lackhead, and this is Without. A show about the things we're losing, have already lost, or should be leaving behind. I began my journey into investigating the relationship between the, the state of the environment, home, and the state of our, our mental and emotional conditions. And we can tackle that further if you wish. Glenn Albrecht is a retired professor of sustainability at Murdoch University in Western Australia. I've got koalas sitting in trees. I've got, I look out the window while talking to you and I've, a wallaby bounces past. In 2005, Dr. Albrecht coined a term, solastalgia, to describe the kind of anxiety and suffering we feel as a result of environmental change. That sense of being part of something beautiful and all-encompassing that's also slowly dying. Professor Albrecht is trying to tap into how humans respond to the destruction of landscape and the natural world. He interviews people and chronicles their emotional reactions. From there, he tries to construct a new vocabulary to describe those emotions. And the results are pretty profound. Solastalgia is also a political concept. It's saying, 
if you wish to address your solar nostalgia, you have to address its cause. And that starts something which is much bigger than where we began, so that we can now share solar nostalgia in the courts in Australia when opposing mining and do it successfully. Here's an example of some very real-world results coming from this academic work. In 2013, a court case which featured solastalgia as an argument ended with the approval of a coal mine expansion being rescinded. Language contains now an emotion which can be shared. When everyone realises that they're suffering and are distressed by the same cause, you can begin the process of, of opposing it. So this term solastalgia can be applied in one way or another to most of our lives. For me, it brings back thoughts of that mall I grew up spending time at, and how, even if it hasn't already been bulldozed and replaced with something glitzier, it's likely to be gone one day as the heat rises. It's an abstract sense of loss, but that's a lot of what solastalgia is, a word to describe the negative space of memory. As climate change brings about more and more catastrophes that will literally wipe away spaces we have memories in and relationships to, solastalgia is going to become something we have to grapple with. After the break, we'll talk to someone who's experienced exactly this kind of displacement and hear how he's working to keep from losing his home. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Politics has never been stranger, or more online. Which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Filmmaker Edward Buckles was only 12 when he was forced from his home in New Orleans by Hurricane Katrina. Almost 20 years later, he's made a new documentary, Katrina Babies, about all the other kids who were displaced the same way. Yesterday, it was a disaster. Today, catastrophe. Our beloved New Orleans, where Katrina hit hardest. I was really struck by that, by that opening scene. Um, I'm not from this country. I moved here at a much later age, and I've, I've sort of ever given up hope on understanding what America is. But that opening image really encapsulates for me how this country works at a systemic level. Like, you have these entire neighborhoods underwater. This is very clearly a, a communal disaster. And then you have individual Coast Guard helicopters making these individual rescues. This, this very individualized response to a systemic communal disaster seems, it seems very American to me. And then you add to that that this is your home. It's, it's not like a, an abstract intellectual exercise. Absolutely. I think that it's also important to add to something that, like you just said, that they were making very late rescues. 
I think that when you see young black children being rescued from their rooftops, when you see them being taken out of water, in some cases five days after the storm had already hit, and in some cases after helicopters had passed them up three and four times, I think that that sets a statement of, you know, how we feel in this country, not just with Hurricane Katrina, but just being black and disenfranchised. But then there's the very next scene, a community gathering, a celebration, children dancing, a neighborhood thriving. Those work hand in hand. Those two are meant to be next to each other because that's to also show that underside of what we claim as our resilience. There's a double-edged sword of resilience, right? And I speak about it in the film, but that was the side of the sword that we actually celebrate. So I thought that it was very, very important that we showed us at one of our worst moments, but then also showed us at one of our highest moments. I mean, it beat the hell out of me. And, you know, I think about it after the fact and it's not like I was looking at sort of editing trickery or sort of technical trickery. This was just footage of what happened and what was allowed to happen. And the power of that just sort of stuck with me. What What is your strongest memory of home before this incredible disaster sort of is overlaid in the national consciousness? I just remember New Orleans being a place that was just filled with Black people and uh, our culture and our families, our stores, our schools, our churches. It was filled with um, my loved ones. It was attached to my tribe. It was attached to my safety. It was attached to my culture. It didn't make me feel like an outsider, right? And obviously, you know, after, after Katrina, all of those things got challenged. All of those things, you know, changed. When you go through such a brutal event, by which I mean not just the hurricane, but also this systemic failure of doing anything about it at a federal level, clearly related to the race of the human beings who are subjected to this. When you experience that, what does that do to your concept of home? Is there sort of a, an instinctual reaction to try and cocoon those memories that were untouched by this that came before, or does it change it forever? You don't see, you know, the elders on the porch anymore, like, you know, making sure that you're okay. You don't see your family anymore in some cases, you know, and then you just see like all of these outsiders who are literally coming in and taking over. I decided at a very young age that I wanted to spend a lot of time in New Orleans. So this natural disaster and this very individualistic approach to rectifying it leads way to even more dissonance. Not only is there environmental wreckage, but the place Edward remembers as home now looks different on a human level. I didn't move away from New Orleans for the first time until I was 29. So I spent all of my 20s in New Orleans, and I wanted to go back to the neighborhood that I remember being with my cousins in and, I, and you know, spending time with my family in. So that's where I rented. And I didn't know much about gentrification, right? I didn't know much about all of the elements that were changing that neighborhood. And after spending some time away and coming back to his childhood home, he noticed things were different. But when I got there, they were very present. When I got there, there were many white people looking at me like, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, but you know, I grew up here. 
if you love New Orleans, you have to make sure that black people are good here. You know, we can't be trying to figure out where home is and what home is. We can't feel like the outsiders because like once that happens, New Orleans will no longer be the uh, New Orleans that everybody loves. I remember watching the, just the sheer number of people who were asked a very simple question in this documentary, like, have you ever talked about this before? Has anyone asked you about this before? And just the number of no's speak to that sort of massive institutionalized forgetting that was thrown on top of this almost immediately after it happened. Yeah, funny enough, when I first came up with the concept for this project, I was unaware that no one had ever asked most of us, right? I knew that I had never spoken about it. I knew that maybe, you know, some close friends of mine and and, and maybe close family members of mine had never spoken about it. But I never knew, I never knew that it was so many young people who really shared that reality that no one had ever checked on them, no one had ever asked them, were they okay? I'm wondering how you've noticed sort of a newer generation think about the possibility of something like this, something like Katrina happening. I think that it's very important for me to say that this has happened again in New Orleans and in Louisiana um, multiple times. My grandmother's house, her house has been flooded at least three times after Hurricane Katrina. Not even based off of hurricanes, just off of tropical storms, you know? And obviously, you know, we know about Hurricane Ida. As an extremely dangerous Cat 4 storm, winds reaching 150 miles an hour, unleashing damaging winds, torrential rains, and a life-threatening storm surge. This is 16 years to the day since Katrina hit there. Climate changes, obviously, it's happening. It's here. It's real. And we are living proof of that, right? Most Black people in disenfranchised neighborhoods see it is most of the time we can't really think about the future of climate change because we're still trying to get over the past of climate change. Like we're still trying to get over Hurricane Katrina. We're still trying to like bounce back from that. So if we had to spend time thinking about the past, the present and the future, you know, <laughs> like it'll, it'll be crazy, you know? One of the things I notice in almost every scene of Edward's documentary is this very real intent to cover the entire spectrum of what it means to call a place home, even in the middle of a crisis. It's not just a matter of listing calamities and their after effects. It's about everything that word home entails. Dan also showed us at one of our highest moments, you know, at a moment that belongs to us, at a moment that can't be taken away from us, right? No matter what type of fucking storm comes, like no matter what happens, you know, 17 years later after the storm, we're still holding on to our culture and it's still being passed down from generation to generation. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. How does AI even work? Where does creativity come from? What's the secret to living longer? TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions with some of the world's greatest thinkers. They will surprise, challenge, and even change you. Listen to NPR's TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. Some 3,800 miles away from New Orleans, in western Alaska, Lorelai Ivanoff, an award-winning Inupiaq writer, has spent years documenting all the ways that our home has been changing 
So I live in Unalakleet. It's at the heart of the Norton Sound. So the river comes right through Unalakleet and then the ocean is to the west. And I have to believe people congregated here because of the river and the ocean. There are so many resources here and it's honestly why I continue to live here. Like Edward, Lorelai's home is being fundamentally altered by climate change. But whereas New Orleans was hit with a cataclysmic event, here there's a slower erosion. It has to do with the way water freezes and thaws, the way the weather patterns fluctuate, these modes of living that people here have become accustomed to over so many generations, but which are now, undeniably, being altered. So in the wintertime, we rely on snow and ice. When I was a little kid, things would freeze in October and the ocean would freeze up in October or November and stay frozen until May or so. And that was life. And that's how things were. And we got a lot of snow. And today, it's very erratic. So things have been changing here and we have been feeling it and seeing it. The first time I noticed a change was probably, I just, I remember it raining maybe 12 years ago, every single month of the year. And that was very, very strange (laughs) for it to rain in November and December and January and February and March. That was really, really strange. Things are going to look very, very different in 20 years and 30 years and 50 years when my little kids are grown and have their own families. Yeah, it's an amazing thing, right? I mean, we my my daughter's five and the way she thinks about fire, her earliest memory is us sort of with our bags packed waiting to see if the fire would jump the river up here in Clackamas County. I, I was wondering sort of when that realization starts to set in that the interpretation that your kids or grandkids might have of the place could be so significantly different from the one you grew up with. How does it play out emotionally to see this transition happening? It's definitely grief and it's definitely anger. And I'm someone who feels things very deeply and I operate from a feeling place. And it kind of feels like... Like, you don't feel your bloodstream, right? You don't feel your blood pumping through your veins. But when I think about climate change and what it is doing to our area and Alaska and, you know, the circumpolar north, I feel my veins. I feel a grittiness there. And then my throat constricts and then my lungs deflate. And, like, it's very very um, physical for me when I think about the warming ocean and the fact that the ice doesn't freeze up enough for us to hunt ogrook sometimes in the spring. Like, it's, it's definitely grief and sadness and, and fear, honestly. A few years ago, Lorelai worked with photographer Ash Adams on an exhibit called To Become a Person documenting indigenous coming of age in rural Alaska at a time when the landscape itself is rapidly changing. I mean, her photos were very genuine and real. And like you saw kids getting dressed for 
prom, right? And like these native kids with brown hair and brown faces, like putting on their prom dress. And we had just gone on this amazing seal hunt with my daughter and she had shot her first seal and like butchered it. And then like two hours later, she showers and puts on a prom dress <laughs> to go to prom. <laughs> I don't know that that exhibit, like it just kind of showcased how culture isn't this thing that only stoic native men practice or old grandmas do in these villages, you know, where, <laughs> I don't know, do people still think we drive by dog team? But um, like it's practiced by a lot of people. It's practiced by the kids. And still we're like immersed in in Western society in a way that's that's been forced, sure. To, for me, it just kind of showed that blending of two societies and how we're navigating that and managing through it. I guess I was gonna I was gonna ask you sort of how you think about being a curator of memory that because of climate change and because of everything capitalism has done to our world, there seems to be a kind of ticking clock on how long these things are going to exist. How necessary is it? to find some sort of permanence, even if it's in storytelling or memory, if the physical thing is not going to be permanent anymore? Oh, um, <laughs> I actually was kind of thinking about this just yesterday when I was writing a piece on, on a seal hunt with my daughter and my niece and thinking about our practices and like being hit with that sadness again, the heaviness in my belly and the the greediness in my veins because I realized like they're grandkids. <laughs> what will they know of this? And it's, my throat is constricting and I'm having trouble speaking because <laughs> having that relationship and connection has brought such richness into my life and to my dad's life and to his dad's life, right? Um, whew, I think indigenous people throughout the world will understand that and have a deep understanding of those words that we truly live in direct relationship. Oh, I can't talk <laughs> with this earth and um, that's where our richness is. I mean, home for me will always be Unalakleet. We live here because in May, we can go ogre hunting and it's like our favorite thing. Because after a long winter where you're cooped up inside, we finally get to take the boat out onto the like open ocean. And I, 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 it's like I can't even let myself think about not having that to look forward to, right? And. I know it's coming, I know it's there, and I know it's coming, but it'll hit when it hits. Maybe we'll, we will move north. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> There's no good answers here. We're going through something we've never gone through before in the history of our species. There's really no precedent for it. And so, how we adjust to it, how we live when so many of life's load-bearing beams are straining, is also mostly unknown. People like Lorelai and Edward and Glenn, they aren't off on an island somewhere. 
They're thinking about things that sooner or later, everyone's going to have to think about. As Glenn puts it, there are moments of deep depression about humanity and my, my view of the future, uh, sometimes cured by two glasses of good red wine at about um, seven o'clock at night. So what I'm, what I'm doing now is putting all my effort into the causes of solastalgia and attempting to address them through my, my philosophical transdisciplinary thinking. So uh, I could have a third glass of good red wine, but I've rejected that path. Back to Donnie and me trying to hash this all out. I was five years old, and we get off the plane, and like you said, the air is soup. Like, it's such a distinctive thing that you feel when you walk out, and no matter how elaborate the infrastructure, how pretty the airport, or how amazing the Four Seasons uh, down the road is, that's the first sensation of Qatar. And that's going to be my last ever memory of Qatar, is that blast of, like, soggy furnace air. I keep thinking about the, the, the fact that, like, there's a good chance if I live a normal lifespan that in an existential way, it's not just going to be that like, oh, the parking lot where this thing happened is now a Four Seasons is going to be, oh, that's not a livable place anymore. And I'm wondering if you've ever thought about it in those terms. I think, uh, you know, whenever somebody says something like five-year plan, I just start anxiously and nervously laughing. And then that slowly maybe devolves into a little bit of tears. But <laughs> um, maybe they'll just build this, I don't know, air-conditioned dystopia um, underneath the... <laughs> <laughs> the, the sweltering, ang angry red sun. God, that would, that's such a better name for this podcast. <laughs> right. The air-conditioned dystopia would work so much better than without. <laughs> you know, nowhere is really home, but then I can also kind of get away with saying that anywhere is home. There's so many ways that a place can become the absence of itself. There's development, calamity, neglect, or just erosion. There's this famous quote by the Egyptian novelist Naguib Mahfouz, Home isn't where you're born, it's where your attempts to escape cease. And maybe that's the thing we're at risk of losing. Not just the physical landscape, but the sense of the ground being stable beneath our feet. The sense that the place where we shed our desire to flee won't suddenly flee from us. Without is a production of Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment. It's written and hosted by me, Omar Alakad. It's executive produced by Claire Slaughter and Harry Nelson. Our senior producer is Emil Klein. Our producer is Lushik Lotus-Lee. And associate producer is Fendel Fulton. With additional reporting from Jordan Allen and production support from Zaley Mahone. Our theme music, sound design, and mixing is by Joanna Katcher at Nice Manners. And our research is by Sarah Mathis and Zoe Gruskin. Thank you to Jordan Allen for her production chops that shaped this episode. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more next week. <laughs>